uh, sort of want to start this morning with a rather strange question. Have you, uh, have you ever seen a walking tree? Uh, well, if you've seen any of the Lord of the Rings movies, then the answer is yes, but then that's just fantasy, isn't it? Well, our next incident in uh, Mark's Gospel, which is actually unique to Mark, involves a man who did see walking trees, or at least that's what he thought he saw momentarily. But for someone who was blind, this must have seemed like fantasy. Must have seemed like a daydream, a flight of the imagination. If you are visiting Windsor, we have spent uh, six Sunday mornings revisiting the first 34 incidents in Mark's Gospel. Well, incident 35 happens in a place called Bethsaida, which is the village where Peter lived. So if you do have a copy of God's Word with you or one in the pew in front of you, can I encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 8 and let's walk through these stories. A group of people had uh, brought a blind man to Jesus and they pleaded with Jesus to touch their friend. I don't know if you've ever begged Jesus to do something. Either to do something for you or to do something for someone else. Well, the people who brought the deaf man to Jesus back in chapter 7 that we looked at last week did exactly that. And here in chapter 8, people are at it again. And you need to be pretty desperate to beg. And that sort of got me thinking, you know, what am I desperate for Jesus to do in my life? What am I desperate for Jesus to do in my family's life? What am I desperate for Jesus to do in our church life? Jesus takes the man by the hand and he leads him out of the village and he performs a most unusual miracle. And sometimes it's been referred to as a two-stage miracle because Jesus spits on the man's eyes and then he places his hands on him and he asks the man, do you see anything? And the man responds by saying, well, I see people who look like walking trees. Now, this is a very bizarre moment because it's almost as if the intended miracle didn't quite work. And so Jesus touches the man once more and this time his eyes are fully opened and his sight is fully restored and he's able to see everything clearly. But why did it happen in stages? Well, again, we're into the realm of mystery. It's not been revealed to us. There's no reason given. But as I thought about this during the week, it strikes me that when it comes to the restoration of our spiritual sight, some of us experience instant and immediate healing. Whereas for others, disclosure is gradual and clarity comes in stages. I don't know what your story is with regard to being able to see clearly. Can you imagine this man's walk home? Jesus tells him, look, don't go back into the village. So in a sense, he has to go home by a different route. But can you imagine that walk home? New sight, new vision, new appreciation, new understanding, new perspective, new hope. See, how Jesus restores sight is interesting. The fact Jesus restores sight is life-changing. The journey continues. Verse 27. Jesus is back with his disciples. And he's by himself with them and they're wandering along. And he asks them two questions. And one of them is an important question, but the other is critical. Who do people say I am? 
Now remember, the blind man saw people, but they looked like trees. The crowd saw Jesus, but according to the disciples, they think he's just a prophet. He's John. He's Elijah. Further disclosure was clearly needed. And then comes the crunch question, who do you say I am? And Peter's in there, because clearly his eyes are beginning to open. And he says, you are the Messiah, or you are the Christ, you are the anointed one. And this is a high point, this is a watershed moment. Clarity has come. But for the time being, say nothing to nobody. Because you see, there is a time to be silent. And then there is a time to speak. And those two questions are timeless questions. But how you personally respond to the critical one, the second one, actually reveals a lot about the condition of your eyesight. And notice, it's not what do you think of Jesus. It's a question of identity. Who do you actually say Jesus is? Jesus sees this as a a perfect opportunity to begin teaching the disciples about his future rejection and suffering and death and resurrection. If you look at verse 31, he starts to tell them something. But the idea of being rejected by elders and by chief priests, and by teachers of the law. Well, that that was nothing new. The disciples already had noticed and recognized and witnessed the tension that existed there. But to hear Jesus speaking of suffering and death, well, that came as a huge shock, because surely messiahs don't get killed. Messiahs don't get killed by authorities. And even though there was reference to resurrection, that clearly didn't cushion the blow. And so Peter, so distressed and so outraged at what Jesus has just shared with them, takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. And I would love to have been in on that conversation. I would love to have known what Peter actually said to Jesus, but we're not privy to that discussion. But what I do know is that the information Jesus just shared with his disciples is so important that any opposition to it was seen as satanic. Jesus was clear on his mission. Jesus was absolutely focused on the way ahead. And hell itself wasn't going to deflect him from his purposes. It wasn't going to interfere with the plan. And so Jesus has to rebuke Peter, and he rebukes him in no uncertain terms. In front of the rest of the disciples, he says, get behind me, Satan. And that must have hurt. And that must have really hurt Peter. And everyone listening must have been shocked to hear Jesus talk to Peter in those terms. But what it did reveal was that things had now got to a completely different level. And so Jesus calls the crowd and he calls his disciples to gather around him because the time has come to issue the radical challenge of discipleship. Jesus was about to make it abundantly clear that the way ahead would not be easy. It wouldn't be easy for him. So he begins to talk about rejection and suffering and death. But he needs to tell people that it's not going to be easy for you either. A cost is involved. A commitment is required. Surrender is necessary. 
And so Jesus lays down the gauntlet of discipleship. And I want to take a little bit of time to explore this highly significant moment. Because if you like, here is the fine print. That everybody who wants to be a Christian, who decides to be a Christian, this is the fine print that every Christian needs to read. And to start with, you'll notice that the challenge was unrestricted. So Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, this calls open to all. If anyone would come after me, but there are three very specific requirements. You need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross. You need to follow me. Do you know, to deny self anything is extremely countercultural. I mean, some people will give up some things during Lent, for example, but to deny self full stop is an alien concept in our society. And it's not about giving up certain things. This requires a giving up of your very self, your right to your own life, right of ownership. It means that you make a choice to submit to a new leadership, to vacate the driver's seat, to live to another agenda, or to put it more accurately, to live to another's agenda. And John Wesley captured this brilliantly. In what has come to be known as the Wesley Covenant Prayer, the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer, prayer that is often used in Methodist churches and in other churches at the beginning of every new year. I am no longer my own. I'm yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. That is a prayer of self-denial. question is, could we ever reach a place of actually praying that prayer? And incidentally, we tend to think of denial as a negative thing, a negative concept, and yet there is such a positive dimension to this because it actually means choosing to live for something far better than self. It's life to the full. And the second stage in this discipleship process, and I know I'm, I'm only skimming the surface here, but the second stage in this discipleship process is to take up your cross. Now, unfortunately, our understanding of this phrase has been unhelpfully influenced by the popular saying, we all have our crosses to bear. The idea that everybody has hassles in life, everybody has a burden to carry, like a difficult boss or an awkward mother-in-law. Jesus wasn't talking in those terms. Jesus was specifically and explicitly referring to death. People carrying crosses in the Roman world only ever meant one thing. And as Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And the Apostle Paul had grasped this idea and so he was able to write to Christians in a place called Galatians. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's about dying. And whenever A.W. Tozer reflected on this verse, he said these words. There are three characteristics of those who are crucified with Christ. First, they have no plans of their own. You can't make any plans when you're hanging on a cross. Second, they are just looking in one direction. And third, they're not coming down. Have we reached that place? 
And people who carried crosses in the first century context, they were forced to do it. They were under duress. But the cross-carrying call of Jesus involves a choice. He bids me. He calls me to come and die. Not a one-off decision, but it's a constant daily commitment I make. Because Luke, whenever he records this incident, he records that Jesus actually said, take up your cross daily. So much more could be said. But you know, the cross is not only the symbol of our salvation, but it's got to be the pattern of our lives. The third dimension. Deny self, take up your cross, follow me. Because discipleship is not about adhering to a set of rules and regulations. Discipleship is about pursuing a way of life that's modelled by Jesus. Modelled by a master. When I was here in April 2008, I gave you this definition of a disciple. A disciple is a pupil, a learner. It's an apprentice who follows a master teacher in order to live how one should live and conduct their life. In our context, I need to change that slightly. But in changing it slightly, it changes everything. A pupil is a, or a disciple is a pupil, a learner, an apprentice who follows Jesus in order to learn how one should live and conduct their life. So, what does that actually mean? It means we pray for our enemies. We pray for those who hurt us. We forgive those who offend us. We choose to be kind to the ungrateful, to the selfish. We freely give. We demonstrate compassion. We seek solitude. We pray. We work for peace. We wash feet. We speak truth. And the list goes on and on and on. But that is what it means to be a Christian disciple. You gauge your whole life around the life of Jesus and you reflect it. You model the decisions that you make on the decisions Jesus took. Jesus modeled a way of life for the original and all subsequent disciples and he invites us to follow him, to accompany him, to walk along with him, to walk as he walked to live, as he lived. And I have already made reference to this, but in the original Greek I understand that these things are stated in the present continuous sense, so it means I've got to keep denying myself, keep taking up my cross, keep following Jesus. Today is a brand new day, 17th of May 2009, never been here before, won't be here again. And so the choice I face is, am I going to deny myself today? Am I going to take up my cross today? Am I going to follow Jesus today? In verse 35, we find the great paradox. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for for me and for my gospel... We'll save it. So you have two options, according to Jesus. Save your own life by all means. Cling to it. Grab it. Sort it. Arrange it. Dictate it. Trust yourself with it. Please yourself in it. That's your choice. But please be clear that if this is the choice you make, you will lose your life. And option two is deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. In other words, lose your life, but bizarrely by losing your life you end up saving it. That's the paradox. Or to put it another way, self-help is no help. Self-sacrifice is the only way to truly live. Because with option one, yeah, you may get physically rich. You may in fact gain the whole world, Jesus says. But see in the process, you will sacrifice your soul and you'll live in spiritual poverty. It's your choice. True discipleship is costly. But as Dallas Willard points out, the cost of non-discipleship 
is far greater than the cost of discipleship. And then Jesus issues a final warning and it's a chilling caution. He says, if you are ashamed of me, and if you're ashamed of my words, well, that's fine. But be warned, the time is coming when the shame game will backfire. Because Jesus is physically due back here one day, someday. And then you may have to live with an eternity of shame. But again, that's a choice we all have to make and it's a risk we all have to take. And the next incident, starting in verse 2 of chapter 9, is is (laughs) mind-stretching. To say the least. It's out of the ordinary. It's shrouded in this thing again called mystery. And Jesus takes three of his disciples, the same three that he allowed into Jairus' house with him. He takes the same three up a high mountain. Throughout scripture, mountains feature quite a lot, often as geographical focal points for times of communion and communication with Almighty God. But Jesus and his three close friends head up a mountain. And then we read that Jesus was transfigured. And that's one of those words that's actually really difficult to connect with because it's not a word we we tend to read a lot. It's not a word we hear a lot. But it means to change to another form. And whenever Luke was telling this story, he actually said that the very appearance of Jesus' face altered. But for Mark, the thing that he wanted to note was the actual change in what Jesus was wearing. And to add further interest to the moment, if any was needed, two Old Testament characters appear. And they start talking with Jesus. And Mark doesn't tell us what they talk about, but Luke tells us that they start talking to Jesus about his departure. So the ominous prospect of the cross was now becoming tangible. And verse 6 is probably the least surprising in this whole passage because it says that the three disciples were frightened and one of them, Peter, didn't know what to say, which is a first. But actually that's not true because Peter did say something. In fact, he said two things. One wasn't very good and one was. The good thing that Peter said was that it was good to be here. The not so good thing that Peter said was, let's put up three shelters, three tents, three booths, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, and then you have a tumbleweed moment. Everything just goes silent because it's a completely wrong thing to say. And at that point, a cloud appears and it engulfs them. And then a voice from heaven speaks, or a voice from the cloud speaks, and it says, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And this is echoes of Jesus' baptism. Only you'll remember that at Jesus' baptism, the voice from heaven actually said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Here, we have a few extra words of the Father. And the extra words are, listen to him. Because what Jesus says is vitally important to hear. It was important for the disciples to be reminded of the significance of Jesus' words. And it is so important for us to be reminded that it's what Jesus says that is so vital we hear, including his radical challenge of discipleship. And suddenly Moses and Elijah disappear and it's just the four of them again. And so they head back down the mountain. And I love in verse 9 where Jesus advises them or he warns them not to tell anyone what they've just seen because can you imagine them trying to? And the next and the final incident I'm going to look at 
is waiting for Peter and Jesus and John and James at the bottom of the mountain. And the other disciples are there. And a large crowd is there. And the teachers of the law are there. And there's a huge row has erupted. And the people see Jesus coming down the mountain and they run to him and it says they're overwhelmed by wonder. But Jesus wants to know, what have you been arguing about? And one man speaks up and he's brought his son, it turns out, who's possessed by an evil spirit to the disciples and has asked the disciples, could they drive this evil spirit out of his son? But the disciples can't do it. And Jesus is not impressed. And so Jesus asks to see the boy. And when the evil spirit sees Jesus, it throws the boy into a convulsion on the ground. And so Jesus turns and says to his dad, how long has he been like this? And the dad replies, ever since childhood. And then he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, please take pity on us and help us. And Jesus then declares, if you're following the text, that everything is possible for him who believes. And then a shift takes place. And it's a massive shift in thinking. Because the man goes from if you can to I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And I don't know how you're here this morning. And I don't know what situation you're facing this morning. And I'll guarantee you that there are some people and you're facing a situation and you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, if you can do anything here, please help me. And therefore you need to take that or make that move from if you can, Jesus, to I believe. Help me in my own belief. And Jesus commands the evil spirit to leave the boy, which it does for good. And then Jesus and his disciples head indoors. And then comes the inevitable question and the strange answer. The inevitable question is, Jesus, why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer, or in some manuscripts, by prayer and fasting. And what's really, really interesting, and I know I've said this before in an evening service, but what's really, really interesting is that there's no record of Jesus praying during this whole incident. Jesus didn't excuse himself. He didn't go pray for half an hour. He didn't fast for a day. He just stood and he delivered. And could it be that Jesus didn't need to pray at that particular moment because his entire life was underpinned by a well-established pattern of prayer. Jesus consistently spent time in the quiet place. Jesus, as we've discovered on this journey, consistently withdrew to be alone with his Father. Jesus invested time in his interior relationship with Almighty God. And you know, I often feel helpless and speechless in the face of brokenness, in the face of pain, in the face of sickness, and I'm sometimes never quite sure what to do or what to say. And the question that burns in my heart as I lie sometimes staring at the ceiling is, Lord, why can't I, your disciple, do something here? And then those words echo in my mind, this kind can come out only by prayer. You see, if I want to imitate Jesus on the battlefield, 
I need to know what it means to imitate Jesus in the boot camp. Am I prepared to imitate Jesus when the spotlight isn't on me? And as I finish this morning, the question I just want to ask you is this. How is your prayer life? How's it been this week? Because some of the stuff you're confronting can only come out by prayer. There's nine other questions, but we're not going there.